right, so you guys ready for this? I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, there's a lot here. <laughs> so we're just going to get right into it. Let's just do that. All right, whenever I prepare for these messages, oftentimes I think about questions uh, that are being asked, whether it's by the people writing, uh, writing these words or if it's uh, a question that I might have or honestly a question that God might be asking or uh, communicating to the people he's talking to. And this one was no different. It, it, how I do a lot of my study is I ask questions, right? Ask questions, find answers. And if you listen to my three by nine the other day on Friday, uh, you probably know exactly where I'm going with this. Um, but I think there's two main questions that Habakkuk is struggling with throughout the course of this book so far. The first one, it kind of comes in the first complaint, and we get hints of it in this one. And that is, why do bad things happen to good people? Or, why, or, or another way to put it, another way to frame it would be the philosophical question uh, about the problem of evil. If there is a good God and he is all-powerful, how can evil exist in the world? Now, I would love to get into all the nuances of this question and, and, and give you a, an amazing answer. I, I think I've come up with a pretty good one, but there has been literally hundreds and thousands of resources written on this topic alone, because this is a topic that we struggle with, I think, more often than we think. For example, if you were at the game on Thursday, how many people were at the game on Thursday? Right, some of you were there. Uh, at the end of that game, there was a pretty bad leg injury that took place. Like, it was, it was bad. If, if you watch football, think Dak Prescott from two years ago, and you'll get an idea as to what, uh, what took place. It was ugly. It was really bad. And it, was, it happened to a player uh, that happens to be one of our hardest workers, probably our hardest worker, uh, probably our best leader. Uh, the heart and soul of our team is how you would describe this kid. And I found myself asking this question, why him? Why him, you know? And, and I didn't just ask that to myself. I mean, we, we kind of had some discussions amongst the coaches. Why him, you know? Of all people, why him? And later that night, as I, was, as I couldn't sleep because I was trying to process what had just taken place, I found the, the spirit convicting me about the, the, that question, why him? Because that injury would be horrific no matter who it happened to. It doesn't matter if it's the, the, the kid that gives you the most trouble on the team or if it's the best kid on the team. That is not something you wish upon anybody, right? And so I found myself, again, convicted as to why I'm asking this question. And really the heart of that question is, is this, is, is, is why is there evil in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? However you want to frame that question. And so Habakkuk is struggling with this in the first part when he sees the unrighteousness that is taking place in Israel and he calls upon God to deal with it. And we see a little bit of a hint of it here. And so here's kind of the, the, the Cliff Notes version as to why there is evil in the world. The first thing you have to understand is it was never part of God's original design for humanity. You can read about this in Genesis 1. Over and over again, he created something and said, this is good. This is good. He gets to, 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 uh, to man and he said, this is very good. And just a few short chapters later, we see evil enter, the, enter into the world when man decided to go against the commands of God. And so evil enters into the world 
And it, basically, it, it, man rebelled against God and introduced sin into the world or evil into the world, and it has reared its ugly head in every part of creation. And I don't mean just like in the, in the way that people treat other people, but even when we get down to why sickness and pain and hurt is in the world, it all comes from this one moment in time. And creation itself knows that it's something is wrong, that something is, is not right. In, in fact, in, he, in not Hebrews, but Romans chapter 8, we're going to reference Hebrews quite a bit today. But in Romans chapter 8, 20 through 23, it says, For the creation was subjected to, to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage and corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. It feels the effects of evil in the world. And so how did we get here? The, the answer is obvious. It's really hard to, to understand, but it, it's, it's obvious. We got here because we are evil, right? We choose to do evil against other people, the best way that I've heard it put is oftentimes we treat evil as if we are the victim when really, more often than not, we are the perpetrator. Here's an example. Oftentimes we think about murder or we think about hate or we think about some of the most ugly things that you can imagine in the world. And although those are a problem, sometimes we want to overlook other evils in order to just focus on the more drastic ones. When I was in college, there was a man named Seth Phillip that, I, that lived in the dorms with us. He's actually a missionary in Japan right now. Some of you might remember when we had Jared Hinkey here, he, he worked for an organization called Mustard Seed. Their primary purpose is to plant churches in urban Japan. So this guy, Seth Phillip, actually works for Mustard Seed now. But I remember a moment when we were sitting in our college dorm rooms, and he walks in, and he's frustrated. And so some of us, hey, what's going on, man? He said, I just read a stat that is like really troubling to me. And so I said, okay, well, what is it? He said, did you know that we could solve the world's water crisis with the money that Americans spend on ice cream every year? It's funny, but people die every year from the lack of clean drinking water. People die every year from no access to food or basic medicine like antidiuretics or ibuprofen or Advil or Aleve or whatever the case may be. People die from these simple things every year. We know about it. There's plenty of resources in the world to handle a lot of the most evil things that we see and think about that are taking place all over the world. And so what's your point, Matt? What's your point? Here's the point. If God was going to wipe out evil, he'd start with you and me. That's the truth. The reason that evil exists in the world is because God loves us and isn't going to just wipe us off the face of the planet. Whew. It's too early to be crying. I still got a whole sermon to go. But somehow, the God of the universe takes our wickedness and works it out for a better purpose, a better plan, a plan of redemption, a plan of forgiveness. We see this happen with Joseph in the coat of many colors, right? What you have meant for evil, God has used for good. He had a better way. 
Romans 5, 6 through 10 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, since, therefore, you have been justified by his blood, much more shall you be saved from the wrath of God. For if while you were enemies you were reconciled to God by death, the death of his son, much more now that you are reconciled shall we be saved to life. More than that, we will rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Again, I'll say it again. Somehow the God of the universe enacts a plan of redemption even though we exist in a broken world. Guys, that was just my intro. Now we're actually going to get into the text. So I think Habakkuk struggles with a second question that we're going to kind of see. I guess not a second question, but a second truth that I think sometimes we struggle with as well. And so if you have your Bibles, Habakkuk chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 12 and following. I'm going to read, kind of unpack along the way, and then we will make our point as we, as we go. It says this, I do have it up on the screen. I read from the English Standard Version, if, if that's information that you would like to know. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. This is, this is before he starts his complaint, he looks at God and he says, listen, I know that you are from everlasting. You are a rock. You are my firm foundation. You have promised us that we, our, our descendants will outnumber the stars, and so we will not die. He knows God is good. He knows it. But he's struggling with the judgment that is coming. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil, this is where the complaint starts, and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? The, 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 you obviously see the falsehood in that statement because the truth is everybody is an enemy of God. Everybody is a traitor, right? There is no such thing as someone more wicked than another person because we all are part of the brokenness that, that is in our world. Romans 3.23, Ephesians 2.1, 1 John 1, 1.8 all talk about this being the truth. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler, right? We're supposed to be your prized possession, God. How could you treat us like this? He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net, he gathers them up in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Guys, something you have to remember about this too, that's some kind of weird imagery. But what, what's taking place is, remember, this is an oracle. This isn't just a prophetic message that he's hearing. He is seeing a vision from God when he receives this message. And so what he is seeing is something that the, the uh, Neo-Babylonian Empire, the Chaldeans, were really well known for. And it was because they adopted these practices from other uh, nations that they had taken over. 
what they would do is when they would cap- capture a nation, they'd come over and infiltrate a nation, when they would take their captives, they would put a hook inside of their mouth and they would chain them to the next person in front of them and that's how they would string their people about. The dragnets, they would literally drag their people behind horses or behind their armies as a way of punishment, obviously, usually ending in death. And so he's seeing these images take place as this is what is coming for Israel. This, this empire, the Chaldean empire, is, coming, is who is coming to judge Israel. And he's having a hard time understanding why God would allow such a thing. And he finishes off with this. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my, my complaint. He knows God is going to rebuke him, or at least he feels like he's going to. And so he's going to wait to see what is God going to say to me. I'm not going to lie. When I first read these verses, this complaint that, uh, that Habakkuk uh, brought against, his, uh, against God, I honestly, it was like watching a fail video. Like I couldn't watch, but I wanted to watch all at the same time. How could, how could he be talking to the God of the universe this way? Like, no respect, here is how I'm feeling, here is what I'm seeing. How could you let these things happen? You're treating us like the fish in the sea. Just like in the first complaint, he is, he's using some very bold language when he's talking to the God of the universe. Doesn't he understand that God could literally smite him off the face of the planet? It doesn't seem like he understands that. But God's grace shows through once again by not rebuking him. I shouldn't really have said that because that, we're not getting into that just yet. <laughs> but he doesn't rebuke him. Uh, we're, we're just going to spoiler alert right there. He doesn't rebuke him. The second question I think Habakkuk is struggling with was the dis- why is God's discipline so severe? Discipline is a funny thing because people are often irrational about it. As a parent, you know what call I don't like to receive? hey, your kids are acting like a fool, can you please come home? Right, how many parents like to receive that phone call? Does that brighten up your day? Nope, does not. Nobody likes to hear that. Or when you walk in the door, guess what your sons did today? I don't like hearing that, right? Because I know what's getting ready to happen, what I'm gonna have to do as a result of it, right? When my kids are acting like little terrorists and I have to discipline them, it's the last thing that I want to do, right? People are often irrational about discipline, and I think Habakkuk is being a little bit irrational about this. Think about how bad things were in Israel at the time. We talked about this a little bit last week, but I'll catch you up if you weren't here. The king wasn't the only issue in that kingdom. King Jehoiakim did some really stupid things, and a lot of bad things happened under his kingship, but the corruption went into the prophets and the priests and the administration. It infiltrated every part of Israel. And so if God was going to bring about discipline or judgment upon Israel, and he was going to remove these people from these positions, how did he expect this to take place? Of course another nation was going to have to be involved. Either that or God was going to have to smite them off the face of the planet. He was being a little bit irrational about it. He didn't understand why God's judgment, why God's discipline was going to be so severe. 
It doesn't matter if you're a kid or an adult. It doesn't matter if you are a prophet or a lay follower. Discipline never feels good because inherently it is not supposed to. Habakkuk asked why God isn't doing something about these injustices and God in his love and mercy answers him. Here's the underlying truth that I think he is struggling with and that is this, that discipline and grace or discipline and love, they go hand in hand. They are directly connected. We see this in Hebrews chapter 12, verses five through eight, and also in verse 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves. It is for discipline that you endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all you have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Verse verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We are not perfect, and that has been made abundantly clear, but when we enter into a covenant relationship with God, discipline is undoubtedly a part of the deal. The heart of it is clear. Much like a father disciplines their child in hopes that they turn from their actions, so God disciplines his people. The same thing could be said about church leadership or dealing with issues within the church. Matthew 18 lays this out very clearly, right? It gives instructions for how to approach a brother and sister who has sinned against you. But what is the goal? The goal isn't to prove whether or not you are right or wrong. The, proof, the, the goal is that the person would be gained as a brother, that they would confess and that they would turn from their wicked ways and they would follow Jesus and that they would become a brother. And for children, Proverbs 29, verses 15 through 17 says, The rod and reproof give what? Wisdom. But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. When the wicked increase, transgressions increase as well. But the, dry, the righteous will look upon their downfall. Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will delight. He will give delight to your heart. Discipline, no matter where it is enacted, should be done from a place of love and grace. God's hope for the nation of Israel was that their faith and trust in him would be restored. That evil would be disciplined and the righteous would prevail. Discipline that does not come from this place is only revenge. You wronged me, you made me mad, you transgressed, I'm going to make you pay. Fathers and mothers, also those in authority, little piece of advice. When you react in a way you shouldn't or enact discipline in a way that you shouldn't, the best thing that you can do for your child is confess and repent, both before them and God. Teach them what it looks like to come face to face with your own wickedness and how to deal with that properly. I promise you, it'll have a much bigger impact than you could ever realize. Lead by example. Discipline and grace or discipline and love go hand in hand. God's grace just doesn't end there though. Not in this moment. Not right now. God continues to show his grace to Habakkuk by not only not rebuking him, but responding 
in a way to exhort him to stay the course. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 5 is where we're going to be. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets. This imagery is to say what what I am about to say to you is, is as significant as the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses written on tablets. So make sure you are paying attention. So that, he may, so that he may run who reads it. Basically that the people who see these tablets will flock to them and want to know what is said there. It hastens me to the end. It will, or For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Habakkuk wants God's judgment, wants this to be over with already, right? Isn't that how discipline often works? We really want, to, we want, to be, we want it to be over before it even gets started a lot of times. But that's just not how it works. God is not going to lie to you is what he's saying. I am not lying to you. These things are going to take place. And then this next verse, if you, if you want to underline, if you want to put a verse to memory, this next verse might be one of the most pivotal verses in all of the Bible. I'm not, just, I'm not just saying that. I truly believe that this verse is one of the most pivotal verses in the entire Bible. And I think its New Testament usage would reflect that as well. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. A person who is infatuated with himself brings about certain consequences. They cannot be upright in, them, in and of themselves. Their own pride condemns them. Being prideful and self-reliant excludes them from finding the righteousness that comes from God. Keep reading. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. This idea of wine here evokes the expression of a bloated self-esteem that is inherent in the sinful mind and heart. His greed is as wide as Sheol. His death, like death, he, never, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. I'm going to make this point, and it's going to be really simple. And the truth is, I wanted to keep it that way on purpose. The righteous shall live by faith. If you want to tattoo something on yourself, that's what you should tattoo on yourself. Being honest with you. If you want to underline something, if you want to put something as your screensaver on your phone, if you want something that you should remember often, it is this saying right here, the righteous shall live by faith. An actual more literal translation, which is honestly kind of hard to read, but I think it's, it has some power, so we'll unpack that for just a second, is this. But the justified, by his steadfast trust, he shall live. But the justified, by his steadfast trust, he shall live. The justified, first of all, you're in a covenant relationship with God. You are justified. You are made righteous through the relationship that you have in Christ. And because of that, you have a trust that causes you to live and respond and act a certain way as you engage in the world. One commentator wrote it this way, the message that a person shall live by faith underscores that life is a gift received gratefully from the Lord's hand, standing in the sharpest contradiction to the proud who are not upright within themselves, and there they must die. The one who trusts in God's grace for his existence every moment shall live. The emphasis of this verse is that the source of true righteousness is outside of the person. 
If continuing life is a gift received by faith, then the righteousness that is the basis of life must come from the same source. Every day that we have is a gift, and the righteousness that we receive can only come from that same source. This righteousness is directly connected to a judicial standing, which is why I think 4B is one of the most used, is not one of the most used, but is a very pivotal and important verse that's used throughout the New Testament. John Piper, along with others, have said that although this verse is very important, it is missing a piece of the puzzle. Habakkuk knew that the righteousness came from God, but he was not fully aware of God's redemptive plan through Jesus. And that is why it is echoed and its, import, its importance is echoed in the New Testament. It's quoted three times in the New Testament. The first time we see it is in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul literally builds the entire book of Romans on these two verses. I told Ty this week, I could literally preach an entire series on this verse alone. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The second time we see it, Paul uses it again in Galatians chapter 3, 11 through 14. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous The righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, as it is written, curses everyone who is hanged from a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Righteousness does not come from us keeping a set of rules or simply by being a good person. Righteousness comes through faith in Jesus alone. The third time we see it is in Hebrews 10, 36 through 39. For you have, you, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while for, or sorry, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Stay the course, he is coming. It is easy to conform to the wor- what the world wants you to be, but don't do it. Live by faith. Trust that his promises are true. You are saved by grace through faith in Christ, which is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. The righteous shall live by faith. Here's what worries me about this statement. I'm gonna be real honest with you. I think sometimes we get caught up in the living aspect of faith and we don't truly understand what it means to be justified through a relationship with Jesus. I read a book some years ago talking about church planting in rural America. And the author said this, he said, I think one of the most unreached people groups that nobody talks about are people in rural America. And here's why. 
People in rural America have a tendency to think that hard work and being a good person justifies you. It does not. The problem with that statement is the Bible would not echo that. Being a good person and working hard does not and will not justify you. I think the church in America buys into this ideology way too much. Our righteousness comes from nothing we do, but from what God has done for us. Parents, raising productive members of society should not be your primary goal. I do not have to tell you where that will get your kid if they do not have a relationship with Jesus. You should understand that already. Chances are, if you raise kids who love Jesus, the work part of it will come with it. Morality by the world's standards is so fickle. If the last 20 years have taught you nothing, you should understand that. That the world's definition of morality is constantly changing, constantly becoming different. It's constantly, honestly, you could say getting worse, getting better, I don't know. It's, it's going somewhere, and it's not the gospel, I'll tell you that much. As for hard work, I'm going to tell you, I've seen the ugly side of it too. I've seen families broken from, from parents who work too hard and don't spend enough time with their kids or each other. I've also seen people burned out and on the brink of emotional disaster because they spend too much time trying to earn the almighty dollar. Sometimes we wear the badge of busyness as if this is something to be proud of, but I promise you it's not. Living by faith means understanding our brokenness and our need for justification through Jesus alone. There's nothing that we can do to earn favor with God. I will keep saying that until the day that I die, and I hope that from this stage it's always said to you guys. I'll be honest with you, I always struggle with how to wrap these up. I just do. It's like, it's, it's like the bane of my existence to write a conclusion. And so as I was trying to figure this out, I was trying to, fig- I was trying to figure out, okay, what, what question would I want answered if I was listening to this message? And I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, the type of person that I want to know exactly what I have to do, and I don't want you to mess with me once you tell me that, right? But the problem with that is if I give you a list of this is what it looks like to live by faith, a lot of times that's what we just check off in the box to make sure that we're doing what we need to be doing. And that worries me too. So the first thing that I would tell you to do is open up your Bible and read. If you want to start by learning what it looks like to live by faith, go to Hebrews chapter 11. Read that and then start to unpack each one of those characters or those people in the Bible and go through and read about how their life lived was lived out by faith. There's a reason that they're in that chapter. Here's what I'm going to tell you. You're going to see a lot of people that are an absolute mess. But that should be an encouragement to you because most of us are a mess as well. Kirk Wellam He's a a professor at a Baptist seminary. When talking about the manifestation of trust in our lives, gave a list of what that might look like. Now, this isn't the the conventional list. I know I just said I wasn't going to give you that. 
But I think, so I, but I think he kind of hits the nail on the head. If we trust God, we will obey him as our sovereign Lord because we believe he knows what is best. Disobedience and trust cannot coexist. If we trust God, we will walk in his ways and we will do what he tells us. The prophet Samuel rebuked King Saul's disobedience when he said, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen is better than the fat of rams. Obedience is a byproduct of trust. Trusting God will help us wait on him when he delays or is silent regarding our prayers or the fulfillment of his promises. If, if he delays, it is for good reason. His actions are founded on wisdom and love. Before his ascent to the throne Israel, David learned to wait on the Lord. He writes, wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. And you will look, you will look, on, when, you will look on when the wicked are cut off. We must do the same. The world is a crazy place, but where does your trust lie? How do you respond with the craziness that is constantly occurring around us? With unwavering trust, we must understand that he is the supreme ruler of all things. I said that last week. I'll continue to say it. Trusting God will keep us from taking matters into our own hands as if we know better than God and what we should do. Abraham, though generally a wonderful example for trust, along with his wife Sarah, tried to bring about the fulfillment of God's promises of a son by means of Hagar, Sarah's Egyptian servant who bore Abraham, Ishmael. This was not how the promise was to be fulfilled, and the actions had many unforeseen consequences. What power do we really have over the world around us? If we trust God, we will not be afraid. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Fear comes when we take our eyes off God and start to look at our own surroundings. In life and when we pass through the experience of death, we must cling to him, as Psalm 23 says. If we trust God, we will be content with what he has given us. We know that he has promised to give good things to the people, get good things to his people, and that he holds nothing back. He tells us to ask him for our daily bread and to seek first his kingdom, and we must believe that he will supply our needs one day at a time according to his will. And lastly, those who trust God act in faith. Plain and simple. Knowing who God is, what he has promised, what he has done, and how his people have trusted in him in times of temptation, darkness, and, desert, and desertion, ad, ad, adversity, and affliction, as well as the time of joy and abundance, the Christians should be bold and courageous. In the words of William Carey, those who trust God will expect great things from him, and they will attempt great things for him. I titled this sermon, Darkness Does Not Determine. Darkness does not determine how we respond when it comes to discipline. Darkness does not determine how we live in trust and faith each and every day. Darkness does not determine. I can think of no better way to celebrate this fact than to celebrate communion together. So if you have your communion cups, why don't you get those out real quick?